Age to Practice, applying educational reading in the classroom. Join in the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. From Page to Practice is a podcast focusing on the application of educational reading in the classroom. Each episode features one book or article, my reflections and the thoughts of my guests on its use and impact in the classroom. Some episodes may also feature an introduction from the author. Hi and welcome to the penultimate episode of From Page to Practice. As some of you know, I've made the decision to leave the classroom at Christmas and step into something new. Because of this, I no longer feel this is my space and that edu podcasting should be left safely in the hands of the teachers doing the work day in and day out. Add to this that it's becoming increasingly challenging to get enough content to produce every episode, which I think just goes to show how things are for many teachers right now. Unfortunately, without that content, the podcast just can't exist. Today's episode is a pick and mix of three books, as unfortunately, I never got sent enough content for them to be episodes in their own right. So we start by hearing from Jo Facer about her book, Culture Rules. And seeing as Simplicity Rules, her first book, was the first episode of this podcast, it seems completely appropriate to be featuring this today. Hi, I'm Jo Facer and I wrote the book Culture Rules. Um, my first book was named Simplicity Rules and it was about teaching, behaviour management um, and curriculum. And it was it's chiefly about kind of classroom practice and and based on my experiences and what I've learned from other people and books as a classroom teacher. And when I wrote that book, I went to work as a vice principal in this absolutely amazing turnaround school where I learned from some really extraordinary school leaders. And from there, I was privileged to be appointed as a founding principal of a startup school uh, with ARC, which is a, a wonderful multi-academy trust I'd really recommend. And when you're setting up a new start school, uh, yeah, I was literally the only employee, uh, just me walking around talking about this idea of a school. So you don't have any kids, you don't have any teachers, you literally just have the idea of a school. And, and that meant that at that time, culture was absolutely everything. You know, and you spend a lot of time thinking about the vision for what you want that school to be and who you want to work there. And, and you get the, the space and the time to do the kind of thinking that it's, it's hard to do in a fully operational school. And so I was doing some of this thinking and um, my publisher sort of approached me and, and said, was I interested in writing a follow-up book? And I, I write to help me think. So I thought, well, you know, what's the kind of book that I want an excuse to think through and do some research and, and think about some big ideas? And, and school culture was really the thing that I wanted to focus on. So this book is also kind of my own personal journey through school culture and, and what I learned along the way. So in the book, I look at things like building um, a long-term strategic vision for your school, building a team, school recruitment, um, also things that I really care a lot about, like the retention of teachers. How do we get great people staying in classrooms? Um, how do we tackle workload? And and of course, the pupils, absolutely central to everything we do. So what is the impact of a school culture on the pupils? How can we build pupil motivation, get them loving school? And how can we help pupils cope with the inevitable challenges 
of being of being children of of school of growing up of of the the different pressures and and inevitable um things that they encounter along their journey in school um and so i was writing this book and sort of midway through writing it uh <laughs> the world kind of changed um and by the time i finished writing it, it was it was towards the end of that very first lockdown and things were looking pretty grim um and sort of as a result of uh, some really unfortunate setbacks with the school building the school that i'd been appointed to open didn't actually open um on time and it was a real sadness when you've spent a, a huge amount of time working on it on that that that, that would happen um but I was really lucky as well that, you know, by the time I put the final edits on the book, I was head of a very different school with very different challenges to a new start school. And, and I'm still the principal of that school now. It's called Arc John Keats and it's up in Enfield. And we've got 1,800 children from ages four to 18. So it's a totally different kind of school. It's an all through school. It's a real community school in what is certainly for me the most supportive a wonderful parental community I've ever had the privilege to work with. Our parents, our families are absolutely amazing. Um, so what culture rules is not, is, is not a blueprint for school culture. It's not like, here's how you do it. Um, all schools are different. Whatever the similarities, all schools are different because they're created and then they're shaped and then they're run by humans and all humans are inevitably different. Um, you know, and I acknowledge I'm still very new to headship. This is my third year and, and all three of my years as a head teacher have been impacted by the pandemic. So it's been a really strange time to learn how to do this job. And, you know, the reality of having a full school uh, means, you know, I, I guess if I, I would never write this book now because with the with the multiple challenges of that new of this this current school with all of these thousands of children i'm so full of the anxiety that we haven't got it right you know when you've got an idea of a school it's perfect in your head but the reality of a school is is messy and challenging and it's never ever where you want it to be we've got so much work to do and so much to improve at arc john keats um but at the same time the thing that i do still feel uh, is that real sense of drive and urgency to make our school the very best we can for these incredible children in our community. So I hope that you uh, take a look at the book. I hope you get something out of it and I hope it makes you think and, and makes you work on your own school's culture in the way that makes sense to you. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Okay, so next up we are going to hear about the book How Teaching Happens and we have a contribution from one of the three authors to share with you. Hi everybody, glad to be back here. The first time I was here, I talked about how learning happens. Our book about what goes on in the learner's head and how you as a teacher can play a role in making that happen more effectively, efficiently and enjoyably. This time... It's about a different book. It's about how teaching happens. It's about seminal works in teaching and teacher effectiveness and what they mean in practice. It builds upon that first book, but now from a different point of view, from the teacher's point of view, examining what makes for effective teaching in the classroom and how research on expert teaching can be used in practice. In the book, which is composed of six sections, we talk about 30 seminal works in this area. 
The first section is on teacher effectiveness, development, and growth. The second is on curriculum development and instructional design. Then we go on to discuss different teaching techniques, teaching techniques that we know that work, like desirable difficulties or generative learning. In the fourth section, we talk about pedagogical content knowledge, about pedagogical content knowledge in maths, in sciences, in English, in teaching reading, and also technological pedagogical content knowledge. Section five is about the classroom, the relationship between the teacher and the student, about what an authentic teacher actually is and why relationships matter. And finally, in the last section, we talk about assessment, about the different types, the different forms, the different uses of different types of assessment and assessment strategies. If I were to sum, if I were to sum up what teaching is, I think the best way to do it is in just to say that teaching is a paradox. For example, the job of a teacher is to make things difficult, but in a good way, so that students learn better. That what happens, what, that, 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 that which we do to improve performance often doesn't improve learning. Also, that activity, which we want the students to be active, isn't always productive. The only activity that really is productive is cognitive activity. Fourth, a paradox is that learners are really bad at knowing what and how to learn. Judgments of learning by students, that's something I wouldn't really make use of when I was teaching. The fifth is that experts are not always good at teaching their expertise domain. It's because they often suffer from uh, what's known as the curse of expertise. They don't remember what it was and what it was like when they didn't have that expertise. They're kind of like flower, um, butterflies that have forgotten that they were once caterpillars. A sixth paradox is that good teachers know what to do when they really don't know what to do. In some way, they know what they should be doing at the moment if they're really good teachers. And finally, possibly most important, in any event, in my opinion, is that good teacher-led instruction is the best student-centered instruction that you can have. If I wanted you to take two takeaways from reading the book, I think my two takeaways would be the following. The first is that teaching and learning are often counterintuitive. That's what you think you might be best doing often isn't the best thing to do. And secondly, that a good teacher is able to apply clear principles in an arena of chaos. Carl, Jim, and I hope that you've enjoyed reading the book, enjoyed discussing the book, and also has helped to make you as good teachers better teachers. Thank you, and I'm kind of interested in knowing what you thought of it. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. And we have one reader contribution on this book, and that's from Brendan. My name is Brendan Lee, and I'm a primary school assistant principal in New South Wales, Australia. How Teaching Happens, Just Like How Learning Happens, is one of those books that if every teacher read it, our students would have a much better chance at success. The two books have this amazing ability to have a chapter on pretty much every question I've ever had about education. 
like the way that Google can predict the questions that you had before you even asked them. Practicing what they preach, Kirshner, Hendrick and Hill have delivered their messages through stories and analogies that allow you to connect to the key points of each chapter. For example, to explain the importance of teacher expertise, they used the car talk radio story about the brothers Tom and Ray, who were better known as Click and Clack, and how they had callers asking what seemed like unsolvable questions, and then the brothers would joke around and then ask what seemed like totally random questions, only to come up with a proposed solution by the end of it. However, this book is certainly not one of those books that you could read from cover to cover in one sitting. Each chapter provides a lot of food for thought, and I've found myself constantly exploring the links and QR codes that have taken me to papers, blogs, and videos. I've used many of these links to dig deeper into the topics in order to strengthen my understanding. I've lost count of the amount of times that I've found myself shaking my head at how old some of the research is, and yet often unknown. For me personally, the book came out at the perfect time, as I'm currently in a position where I'm providing a lot of professional learning, mentoring and coaching. For instance, I've been purposeful with thinking about the amount of knowledge teachers need and specifically the different types that Shulman's paper describes of subject matter content knowledge, pedagogical content knowledge and curricular knowledge. On top of this, the differences between experts and novices that Berliner's paper describes and how it is subject and context specific. This knowledge has made me reassess how I structure my professional learning that I deliver, and think about the relevance for certain teachers. There are a few chapters on curriculum design that really made me think. One of those was the pebble in the pond one. Some of the problems that it points out with traditional instructional design are one, compartmentalization, and that's when we teach knowledge, skills, and attitudes separately. Um, this, you know, I put this one into practice when I was, uh, I recently designed a unit of work and I was um, really deliberate in how I included, you know, the skills that need to be learnt uh, as well as what knowledge needed to be developed. Second one there is fragmentation. And that's when we teach a complex topic in small pieces without pointing out the connections. The third one is transfer paradox. An example of that is blocked practice. And that's not efficient at reaching a transfer of learning. So that's when you're just um, deliberately practicing one aspect and, and not helping them see how it fits in the bigger picture. David Merrill's The Pebble in the Pond Method starts with what the learner should be able to do after the instruction and his five basic principles are, one, present instruction in the context of real-world problems. The second one is ensure that the instruction activates relevant prior knowledge or experience the third one is have instruction demonstrate what is to be learned rather than merely giving information about what is to be learned. Four, give learners an opportunity to practice and apply their newly acquired knowledge or skill. And five is have instruction provide techniques that encourage learners to integrate the new knowledge or skill into their everyday life. Another chapter that I found really interesting was chapter nine on how to tell the story of an idea. It looks at whenever we plan to teach the question of how to represent an idea or set of ideas should be central to our thinking. The onus is on the teacher and it looks at how any idea or problem or body of knowledge can be presented in a form simple enough 
so that any particular learner can understand it in a recognisable form. Another chapter that stood out was if you don't know where you're going, you might wind up somewhere else. And it used the analogy of going on a trek with everyone following different maps. It also highlighted this quote from Robert F. Major, where instruction is successful or effective to the degree that it accomplishes what it sets out to accomplish. Also spoke about well-defined instructional objectives and how they help you pick the right tools, help you play with variations around the main approach, help you achieve consistent results, help you measure learning, help learners organise for learning, and help you streamline and direct instruction. These chapters made me reassess how I sequenced um, work that I was preparing and also looked looked at um, thinking about the knowledge that, that students need and how best to communicate the messages that I needed. And so we were looking at a text-based unit of work uh, using an archaic text um, following Doug Limov's um, Reading Reconsidered suggestions and we looked at this book, The Velveteen Rabbit. And so the way that I structured was, um, you know, focusing on, uh, you know, trying to give them the relevant prior knowledge that they would need in order to be able to, to connect to the text and, and finding those sorts of connections um, that they might be able to make. <clears throat> and then also thinking about what that end product is that I wanted them to be able to produce. Uh, and that was actually a piece of writing. So again, uh, the unit looked at connecting the knowledge that they needed and then the skills that would also need to be developed by looking at uh, specific writing techniques um, throughout the whole unit of work. And they were, so they were using the knowledge that they were developing from uh, that the, the book, the text, uh, but then also building up their writing skills at the same time. As an Aussie who recently had the pleasure of seeing Professor Anne Castles present live, <clears throat> it was really nice to see her paper highlighted in Chapter 20 for How Should We Teach Reading? Finally, my key takeaways are, we need to know where we are going, both students and teachers, and the most direct way is through being direct and explicit in your instruction. It's not enough to know how to teach, but to know the content and how to teach that content for the specific students in front of you. It's our job to find a way to deliver our messages so that they can connect with them. And finally, teachers need mental models to help us have a better chance of responding effectively in the classroom. Lastly, if you'd like to connect with me, I blog at learnwithlee.net and my Twitter handle is at learnwithlee. Thank you. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. The final book in today's Pick and Mix episode is What Every Teacher Needs to Know by Jade Pierce. And our first contribution is from reader Heather. Hello, my name is Heather De Silva. I'm a history teacher in North London, as well as a CPD organiser for Harringay Education Partnership. I came across the book What Every Teacher Needs to Know, partly because it is recommended by a friend of mine, John Tomzett. I immediately, once I picked up the book, thought this was a great book for me in terms of its structure and coherence. Part one is exceptionally useful. Obviously, it looks at every different types of topical research at the moment, particularly in regard to cognitive overload. 
Part one is so helpful. It summarises all the key ideas and documents that are going around at the moment and gives you a really clear, concise explanation for each one. Already, I've put that from page into practice by using it with my ECTs and with people that I'm teaching on the MPQML. For many of us, research feels like it's something is done by somebody else and is too much for us to handle in the classroom. But part one of what every teacher needs to know by Jade Pierce really helps you capture those clear ideas and helps you start thinking about putting research into practice in your classroom. I particularly found useful all the work on memory and cognitive overload. So looking at part two, as a history teacher, I am teaching, currently teaching a GCSE year 10 class. And what every teacher needs to know is how we're going to get that information across. I in only have two periods a week over two, so four periods a fortnight. So time is of the essence. So I was looking for strategies that would enable my pupils to be concise in their explanations, but also remember more because revision was going to be tight. I looked at a lot of the strategies that Jade talks about in part two, particularly writing strategies, repetitive frameworks that help pupils unload their ideas in a coherent sequence, thinking about the questioning and thinking about different strategies that enable pupils to remember. I particularly liked the ideas of verbal prompts. I'm currently teaching the Cold War. So I immediately thought, what are the verbal prompts that would help my pupils remember a huge dump of information? I decided to skim it right down to what she talked about, getting that really clearly taken back to those core words. So we decided just to look at the words mistrust, division and tension. Recognising that if they understood those three core words, all the knowledge they were learning would really hang on one of those three ideas. So that was how every lesson was going to start. And also by using different, on, on section 13A on multimedia effect, using signs as codes for different language. So we were, I was doing like Makaton, which was a T for tension, an M for mistrust, uh, an S for suspicion, a D for division. And that they were, I, to everything we were taught would hang on those words. And just by using those signs would trigger something in their memory. I was also using other codes that she talked about in the multimedia effect, which starts on 158, of pressure. And took out that word pressure by putting the hand on my head and saying, what does this mean? Pressure. And so pupils were seeing me do it visually and as well as writing it. I've used in that chapter on part two the, the writing scaffolds on using significance in history. First, why something is short-term and long-term and getting those scaffolds embedded into the pupil's short-term and long-term memory. They have been absolutely pivotal. I will not need to do much revision on those. So the result of thinking about all the work that has gone into part two in terms of evidence-informed teaching, what does it look like in my classroom now? Well, obviously I use explicit instruction. We have different types of questioning. 
The other one thing I'd read about was on the questioning was the use of questions where I don't actually say whether it's wrong or right. You just go round the room taking lots of answers. Obviously, using mini whiteboards, hand signals, which I've already talked about, have obviously been helpful in terms of instant AFL. As a result of this, I feel my pupils remember more, are fluent in their explanations, are more concise, and most importantly, if we get into the routines that Jade talks a lot about and concisely looks at some of the cognitive research that's been, particularly the work on Vana Jana Weinstein, that pupils are much quicker at remembering and seeing the patterns in the past. The patterns in the past are so important. If pupils can see that they are not just repeating work, but the past itself has patterns that repeat itself very much like maths or science, then that sequence enables them to remember more. Thus, meaning when it comes to revision, when I haven't got the time, they won't need it because they have the strategies, both written and verbal, to enable them to unpack their ideas on paper and express them fluently and coherently, but also be able to engage in good dialogue with their peers. I would highly recommend What Every Teacher Needs to Know by Jade Pierce. It is the one book that I can go to, I can get fingertip understanding about all the different research without having to read it all myself. Being able to quickly and concisely put it into my practice and also put it into any CPD that I do at school, which is always helpful because sometimes for some of us, we haven't got the time to do the research, but we have got time to read the summary. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Finally for today, we have two people whose support of this podcast I am forever grateful for. In fact, they've already sent me their contribution for the final episode. Their reflections and discussions have brought so much to so many episodes, and I highly recommend you take a look at the Greenshaw Learning Trust Book Club if you haven't already. Here's Dave and Rhiannon. Hi, I'm Dave Tushingham, and I'm a lead practitioner in a school in Bristol. Hello, my name's Rhiannon Rainbow, and I'm School Improvement Lead Maths and ECT Coordinator for the Greenshaw Learning Trust. And we have been reading What Every Teacher Needs to Know by Jade Pierce. Um, and and honestly, where to start? Um, what's an incredible book to have on the bookshelf. Um, it is one of those books where I can imagine so many teachers up and down the country um, using as a as a, as a toolkit almost to um, to support um, improving their teaching practice. It is um, set into two parts. Uh, the first part um, looks at uh, twenty seminal papers um, and and what that means for teaching practice. For, so for teachers that maybe um, feel that little bit more expert, um, they can go straight to that first part and they can um, think about what those papers might mean for their classroom practice Um, and then there is a second part which really then breaks down um, some of the key aspects of pedagogy and and teaching practice and um, and offers key takeaways and and recommendations for what teachers can do um, in terms of the 
improving what they do in the classroom. So it really helps to connect the, the latest educational research that is out there um, and to, to help us to make our own lessons um, evidence informed. And, and so our practice is, um, is done not just on a, on a gut feel, but actually um, what is, is proven or, or shown to, to work the best. And, and, and there's so many sort of interesting chapters in here. And, and one of the key um, takeaways that, that we get from this book is about sort of, you know, taking one step at a time and, and, and making sure you do one thing and do it well before you move on. Um, but we spent some time um, talking with Jade um, in our book club about um, metacognition and metacognitive practices and um, and some of the ideas that, that came out of that particular um, chapter uh, based on, on the papers that were shared uh, were around how um, with metacognitive practices we should be thinking of how we can um, teach those, um, those pieces of knowledge on, on how to um, to, to plan how to revise, uh, we should be teaching those explicitly and and um, and using um, an idea from Craig Barton's um, latest latest work, um, having an I do, we do, you do model um, can be really supportive in that process too. So so something specifically that I've taken into my practice is uh, when I'm um, supporting students in their revision processes, maybe it could be a, a self quizzing activity where they. Um, answer, um, write, a, write a fact down and have to try and recall. Um, I will model that under a visualizer for them so that they can see um, how that process might work. And then I might um, ask them to support me in doing that process before they do some um, self-quizzing in, in the classroom. And then the deliberate practice for them uh, may be to, to go into their independent practice and their homework that they might be doing at home. Um, so there were so many um, sort of really complex papers that have been broken down in this book um, to something which is manageable to read, that's accessible for teachers, that then gives you those practical ideas that you can take away and use in the classroom. And, and that's just one of many examples uh, which I can imagine myself using over the, over the coming months and years. Yeah, and it's just... It's one of those things that I know it it might sound like I say it a few times, but it genuinely does. It's one of those books that I wish would have been around earlier on in my career, because if it had have been around, I might have been more likely to have been more braver, less intimidated about accessing research papers myself and, and reading them and trying to be able to follow what's happening. Because if you're not used to reading a research paper, it might seem quite intimidating. Well, I know it's intimidating for me because I'm not used to reading it. I'm not the target audience. And, and also that might mean that if somebody is trying to read it, then their cognitive load is going to be quite high. Um, and they might not interpret the information or extract it as intended. And that can lead to where things aren't necessarily implemented as, as well as they could be, or as it becomes slightly warped, potentially a fad or a lethal mutation. Whereas because Jade has got a guide, scaffolding and support to work alongside the research paper in her book. It means that you can have a look at, you can have that overview, you've got that gateway, but you've also got that scaffolding for if you wanted to take a look at the original source yourself as well. And it's the more you engage in something like that, the more you your confidence and your competence in being more independent in research, reading research papers, accessing research papers, extracting the information from it yourself, the, the more likely that's going to happen and the more impactful then that will be. Because otherwise, so often in, the, in, in, in these things, we'll have a conversation with somebody, we'll listen to what they've said 
And then we don't go away and check the detail on it first. We take their interpretation. And sometimes you can have that accidental aspect of Chinese whispers. So if you've heard it 10th person down the line and haven't gone away and fact checked it, then things do get warped. They go slightly awry. And I go back to a conversation with Mark McCourt where he said, well, if, if somebody says something, don't take it as it is. Go away and read it. But going away to read the original research paper isn't is uh, is not something that everybody's comfortable with. So I'm hugely grateful to Jade because the time she must have poured into putting this book together to making so many seminal and complex research papers accessible to us um, in the profession is, is absolutely priceless, if, if I'm honest with you. And the way that she's able to do it and have that format and that structure through the book to help guide you through and navigate a whole variety of them just makes it more familiar and in being more familiar we're more likely to use it and be more productive and impactful in the way we are so it is it is a really great book and I'm so chuffed to bit she's written it um and and I know it's going to be a well-thumbed book as well so yeah Toast me, and um, and and just sort of to, to wrap up then, um, the the one key takeaway for me in the book is that um, we we have many ideas um, and practices that that we use in the classroom, and they they work incredibly well. Some work uh, better than than others, um, and and the book is there to support um, those practices that work less well, um, to to support us to see why that might be happening, and then how we can sort of change our practice to be. Um, more, more efficient um, to, to increase the, the pace of, of progress for our students, um, but also uh, with those practices that, that are working well to, to help us to make them even better. And the example that I've picked before is an example that um, we, we talked about in Helen Howe's um, session, um, uh, page to, to podcast, and and it was um, it was about sort of revision techniques, but um, to to actually think in more depth about how we hand over the baton, and to have that sort of increased layer now of the work, the deliberate practice the students do in the classroom before they then go away into their independent study. The level of narration we put into the modelling, and just the little details that we can add now, um, has has made a visible um, difference to the to the practice. Um, in our academy for our students when they are revising. So just a massive thank you to Jade for, for writing. Um, thank you to, to those who are listening as well. I hope that's been useful. And and um, and yeah, really, really looking forward to, to sort of you know, reading more of this book. It's quite a new book that's out and um, there's, there's still some chaps I really want to get my teeth into here. So, so yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Given that the podcast is coming to an end, I want to make the next and final episode a celebration of all things edgy books, edgy podcasts, reading for CPD, and what I hope this podcast has brought to teachers. But as per usual, it just won't happen without the content. I plan to release on the 31st of December, so there's plenty of time to get in touch. I'd like to hear from both readers and authors, so if you have any reflections on your favourite edgy book, your favourite episode, or why you think reading for CPD is important, please too get in touch. Just in case I don't get enough content for that episode, I'll take this opportunity now to say thanks for listening and supporting the podcast for just over three years. Bye. You've been listening to From Page to Practice. Don't forget to join in the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Alternatively, to suggest a book or article or volunteer to contribute to an episode, visit learninglinguist.co.uk 
forward slash page practice podcast. Thanks go to Kevin McLeod of Incomtech.com for use of the tracks Cheery Monday and Fuzzball Parade, which are licensed under Creative Commons.